So this morning we are going to go to a, um, an interesting place uh, in the, the story of the resurrection, and that is to the heart of Thomas. We're going to consider the dramatic and amazing story of the man that you proverbially know usually as Doubting Thomas. Um, and, and I want to start the message in an odd place this morning. I want to start the message at the end of the, the text, because the end of today's passage, which is in chapter 20, so I should say, if you have John chapter 20 in your Bible, or if you want to follow it along on your phone, um, just as long as you don't go to other places on your phone, you can do that. Um, but John chapter 20 is going to be the text we're going to be looking at today, and we're going to look specifically at verses 24 uh, through the end of the chapter, which is 31, so 24 to 31. And I want to start at the end of the text today because I, I want us to understand why John is telling this and, and why uh, he, what he wants it to do for us. Because th- this ending note of this uh, text, it does specifically apply, not just to the whole book of John as it will sound, but to, to this very story that we're looking at today. John is speaking to that when he closes in this way in verse 30 after talking about Thomas. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What we're going to read today, like everything else in John's gospel, has this as its goal that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John has 21 chapters chronicling three years of Jesus' life, his miracles, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. But fueling and undergirding all of it is one central, fundamental, essential, indispensable, life-anchoring, hope-securing, hell-destroying, soul-rescuing goal of all that John writes. And Thomas is no exception. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the crashing symbol at the end of the the drum roll of today's story, Doubting Thomas. So we need to see the story of Thomas in that light. It was written so that we would believe in Jesus. And it was written so that we would believe in Jesus because we must, because we must. Oh, thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks, sweetie. <clears throat> I, know, I know Easter is, is a big day. It's a big holiday, it's still in our culture. It still has some games, so to speak, the people who don't even believe in Christ. Easter still has cultural weight. We, we dress up, we do Easter egg hunts, we give our kids chocolate bunnies, we gather for a family feast. All those things are wonderful. But Easter is given to us for one reason, above all reasons, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing and continuing to believe, we would have life in his name. We must believe in Jesus. We must come to see him as he is. 
the risen and living son of God and come to him for mercy for our sins. And we must spend our lives trusting him, not giving up on him, not leaving him. And we must, by the power of his Holy Spirit, follow him and have lives that testify that we really do believe. Because he is our only hope. He's our only hope. Otherwise, we have no hope. We have no life. We have only judgment for our sins and eternal punishment for those sins. So this is a story that has a lot of tenderness to it, has a lot of compassion to it. It's a, it's a story that most of us can step into and feel really met by. And, and in all that beauty and, and goodness and warmth and, and the sort of way this story kind of comes over and gives us a big hug because there's so much room in this story for us. John wants us to remember the story has a very sober and fundamental and essential point. We must believe. We must find life in his name because there is life in no other. And so as we'll see what Jesus is doing, he's doing because this is so urgent. Because what has to happen in Thomas's heart is so crucial for him and for us. It's not just a nice story. It's crucial. It's crucial. So I hope that drawing out this ending goal that John has for us here will help us treasure it more and and consider it more with more gravity so that we might see how critically important it is for, for us, just like Thomas, to land where Thomas lands and to fight and struggle to stay in that place of belief with Thomas. But most of all, I hope we'll also be filled with hope to see how crucial and important our faith is, not just for us, because it is, but to see how crucial and important our faith is to Jesus. To see how crucial and important our faith is to Jesus. Our faith isn't only our concern. We see so clearly in this story that our faith is Jesus' concern. That he is willing to go to whatever links he must go to to secure and preserve the faith of his people. So I hope we can also find not just an urgency for ourselves, but also a hope in the compassion and the care of our Savior. So with that set up, let's go through the passage in full. Starting in verse 24, I'll read through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Let me stop right there. There's a little bridge between what Michelle and Emma read and what we're going to read today. And that is the first time Jesus appears to all his disciples, Thomas is not there. He's not with the disciples. Eight days later, Jesus comes back when Thomas is with them. Okay. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Can we pray again? Lord, please help me to preach in ways that are helpful for everyone here today. I pray, God, that you'd be glorified in the words that come out of my mouth, that they would not distract, they would not uh, be superfluous, superfluous. They would help people in their need to walk with you, to come to you, to stay with you. May you be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, first I want to consider Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, largely from this passage. But did you notice something in this passage? There's nothing in this story that says anything about him doubting. As I read this passage, Thomas doesn't sound doubtful. He sounds done. Did you get that sense? In the face of two major appearances by Jesus to Mary and and another Mary, and then to the other disciples who've come, and Jesus has showed up to these people, Thomas has this to say, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. This is not, I believe, help my unbelief. This is not John the Baptist sending his messengers to Jesus. Are you the one to come or or are we supposed to have another? Because I'm stuck in prison. This is, I will never believe. Now, this is some of our brothers and sisters. This is some of our parents. This is some of our, our teenage kids. I will never believe. I am done now, I, I think there are hints in John's gospel that Thomas is not, he's not hardened by a desire to not believe. He's not a, a militant atheist looking to keep Jesus at bay, but he seems to be stuck in such deep discouragement that, as he admits, he feels he can not believe without an absolute miracle. And we see hints that Thomas has 
the, the potential for this kind of place. I, I think you can see hints through the lines in John's gospel that, that Thomas may be a think the worst type of person, uh, a fear the worst, think the worst, run to the worst case scenario type of person. Way back in John 11, Jesus is on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. He purposely waits so that Lazarus dies so that Jesus can do a greater miracle than just healing a really bad sickness. And he says, it's time to go heal Lazarus. And Thomas, he's the only one in that little interchange who's singled out. He knows, just like the rest of the disciples, that the rulers are trying to kill Jesus. So when Jesus says, let's go, Thomas says, okay, let's go so we can die with Jesus. Jesus says, I am going to heal Lazarus. Let's go raise this man from the dead. And Thomas says, let's go die with Jesus because he's going to get killed and so are we. Thomas is a man bracing for impact. That's, That's how he strikes me. And when Jesus is put to death in the most public and violent and gory and shameful way imaginable, after three years fueling the tank of hope with miracle after miracle after miracle and teaching the law of God like no one had ever taught it, casting out demons calming the sea, raising the dead, curing the blind, after all that poured in to these disciples. And then Thomas sees Jesus hung up on that cross like a dog, beaten beyond recognition. He is crushed with Jesus. Not in the same way, but his, his heart is, I think, crushed. And he is He's done, and he just doesn't want to brace again for another terrible impact. So when they say these things to him, Jesus is alive. His first instinct is to hide, to hide from hope. I I don't want to be crushed again. He's not even with the disciples when Jesus first appears. Now, it's possible that he was helping his mother or doing something important for the disciples, getting food for them. But I think it's also possible that that he, he was either hiding in greater fear in an isolated place or he just was done with the whole enterprise. So when he finally comes back to his friends and he's told, he refuses to believe. He doesn't even want to take a chance. And that's not only a really sad and painful place that m- most of us can probably relate to. With regard to God, It is a really dangerous place. Thomas is in trouble, not just with his emotions, but with his spiritual safety. He's in trouble. He's in danger of falling away and giving up on Jesus. And that's not just sentimental. That's not just an emotional issue. That's not just, oh, he's having a rough time. That is eternal life at stake for him at this point. Thomas is stuck in hopelessness. 
And it's dangerous. You know, there's a curious but powerful verse in Exodus about the Jews and their unbelief. When Moses first tells them of God's promise to deliver them, it says, it says in Exodus, they did not listen to Moses because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They did not listen to Moses because of their discouragement and harsh labor. There are times when our unbelief is not sourced so much in this determined desire to not believe like Christopher Hitchens or Ricky Gervais or other famous atheists, but, but we have just surrendered to the numbing pleasure of pessimism, to the numbing protection of pessimism as an easier way out than trying to continue the pain of hoping. When it comes to the promises of God, though, although we can all sympathize, we've all been there, when it comes to the promises of God, that is a dangerous place. That is a place not only to sympathize with and receive compassion, but, but we need care in that place. We need care. And depending on where we are in the trajectory, we might need exhortation. We might need correction. It's difficult to, it's a case-by-case basis, but, but it is not a safe place. When it comes to the promises of God, the Lord never once in his word invites us to disbelief. He never ever invites us to allow our discouragement because of whatever we've gone through, which he sympathizes with. He never allows that discouragement. He never gives us permission to let it have more authority over our hearts than his proclamations over himself and his proclamations about himself. He, he never does. The, the, the utmost blatant, in your face, hard to like even process. Example of this I can think of is in Job. You know, Deb Coleman has done a, a work uh, in her heart. God's done a work in her heart. She's been reading Job and she's talked to us about some of those, those things. That God puts Job through things that some of us may never be able to relate to, takes all of his wealth, takes all of his children, covers him with disease. And at the end of it, God never tells Job, oh, I'm so sorry I put you through that or that must've been super hard. Job begins to judge God and God comes to Job and says, my son, you have no right to judge me. You have no idea what I'm doing. I haven't told you. I don't have to tell you, but you have no right to judge me. You have no idea what I'm like. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what's in my head. You are not me. And therefore you have to trust that I am still good. And so it's a hard lesson, but we've got to find a way through these difficulties because I can say all that and tell you what God says, but we can still be stuck. We still need help. So what do we do? We'll, t we'll talk about that more, but I just want to make the point. Thomas is in a really dangerous place. And here's another thing about Thomas I want to say. Thomas has good reason to believe. He has good reasons to not give up on Jesus. Jesus has been telling his disciples again and again and again, if you read through the gospels, I am going to get killed 
I am going to get killed and I'm going to rise from the dead. He's been telling them this again and again and again. Guys, this is going to happen. It's, read through the, the, the Last Supper in John's Gospel. Jesus is like, I'm telling you guys this is going to happen so that when it happens, you'll know that I'm in control and you won't give up hope. So Thomas has reasons to believe because Jesus has been telling him this was going to happen. Thomas has reasons to believe also because as I said before, for three years, he has seen Jesus walk on water, quiet storms with a word and raise the dead, cast out every demon, heal every disease. He knows that Jesus is not a normal person. He knows that Jesus is not bound by natural law, but he's stuck and he knows it. So what is Thomas's way out? Well, let's consider Jesus' response because that's the only way he's going to get unstuck is because Jesus is going to unstuck him. It's the only way we will get out when we're stuck in places like this. Eight days after Easter, Thomas comes back to the community. He gets the greatest surprise of his life when Jesus appears through a locked door. John makes it clear to us that Jesus is now doing metaphysically impossible things through his resurrection body, which, you know, just anecdotally on the side, I think there are things that happen in the metaphysical, physical union that happens at the resurrection that will completely blow our minds. I do think our bodies are going to be like Jesus's glorious body. And I do think we're going to be able to do things because of the union of the metaphysics and the, and the physics of, of the new creation that are going to be wonderful and incredible. And I can't wait. So the doors are locked and Jesus appears <laughs> and he says, peace be with you. I mean, I just think about like the, the people in the room at that moment and they're just like talking and, you know, like we don't know what their attitude was, but for some reason, Jesus says, peace be with you. And although that's a great message because it speaks to the cross and the wounds and what Jesus has for them. Sometimes I wonder if, it, if it's also like, peace, 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 calm down, calm down. Because they're just like, what is he going to do next? He, we're just talking and all of a sudden he's right there, you know, it makes you a little jittery possibly. So he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And then he turns his attention on Thomas. And this is amazing because what I love about this is Jesus tells Thomas everything Thomas has been saying and thinking. I mean, Jesus wasn't physically there when Thomas said the statement, unless I see his wounds and put him in his, put my fingers there. But Jesus says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. He follows Thomas's statement, rhythm by rhythm. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus knows everything you think all the time. Every thought, every word, every deed, he knows. He knows. And that's a great place for us in prayer to start with. God, you know better than I do what's in my heart. Every thought, every word, you know. And then you begin to just tell him anyway and relate to him because he wants you to talk to him. You can never come to God with something that he doesn't already know about you. including the very worst stuff. 
Like I will never believe. So this is the, the beautiful embrace from the Lord. And there's just such incredible humility and kindness here from him. So if, if you struggle with doubt, if you battle with unbelief rooted in discouragement, if you want to believe better than you do, I want you to take to heart this morning, this Jesus. Who has a right to your belief, who is worthy of your belief, for whom you should fight hard to give him the honor he deserves of believing. And we'll talk about this, who's given you a word when combined with his Holy Spirit can sustain you if you do not neglect it. So we have a Lord who justly commands our belief who, as we saw by Thomas, has a right to say, you should believe. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And to, he has a right to give us that rebuke. But we have also a brother who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses, including our vulnerability to doubt, and who comes to us to give us grace and mercy to repair and to preserve our belief. Though Jesus is not physically present to us now as he was to Thomas, his spirit is present to us now. And this is the same spirit of the same Jesus who did this for Thomas. The same heart of Jesus with the same tenderness, the same compassion, the same bold love that called Thomas to check out his wounds so that he could be freed from his unbelief. That same Jesus will help you overcome your lack of faith as well. Charles Spurgeon writes one of the most beautiful things I've ever read about this story and what it means for us. Speaking of Jesus, Spurgeon says, he does not say if he does not choose to believe, he may continue to suffer for his unbelief. But no, he fixes his eye upon the doubter and addresses him specially, yet not in words of reproach or anger. Jesus could bear with Thomas, even though Thomas had been a long time with him and had not known him to put his finger into the print of the nails and thrust his hand into his side was much more than any disciple had a right to ask of his divine master. Yet see the condescension of Jesus. That means the, the humbling of Jesus, the lowering of Jesus. It's a different way we hear the word condescension. It, it means Jesus' willingness to get down right where Thomas was and meet him right where he was. Rather than Thomas should suffer from unbelief, Christ will let him take great liberties. Our Lord does not always act towards us according to, listen to this, this is so beautiful. Our Lord does not always act towards us according to his own dignity, but according to our necessity. And if we really are so weak that nothing will do but thrusting a hand into his side, 
he will let us do it. Nor do I wonder at this. If for our sake, he suffered a spear to be thrust there, he may well permit a hand to follow. If for our sakes, he suffered a spear to be thrust there, he may well permit a hand to follow. When you are intensely discouraged, struggling with doubt and unbelief, it is not a cute thing. It is not a trivial thing. It is a serious thing. And at that point, I want you to think about a couple of things. First, think about the mercy and compassion of Jesus. And it might be hard because you kind of have to force yourself. Well, that's the one I'm struggling to believe in. Well, just think for a second about who Jesus is in the Gospels. I will give you $100 if you can find in the Gospels any time that anyone came to Jesus, truly came to him for help, ever. Not to test him, not to show how right they were over him theologically, not to get in trouble with the Romans, not to um, get their brother to give him the money that he owed them, not to show them how self-righteous they were. And No, they really needed help. And they came to him for mercy. Show me one time when Jesus ever turns anyone away for anything they need help with. He doesn't do it ever, ever in the gospels. Anyone who really comes to him, and, and, and you know, I can think of that Canaanite woman, you might remember that story. He made her wait on him quite a while. He said some things that appeared to be rebuffs. They were just designed to purify her faith even more. If you don't give up, eventually he gives you what you need. Some of us give up too early. Some of us come to our own conclusions too quickly. But if you scour the gospels, you will never see Jesus ever turning anyone away who has a need. And, and this is the same with doubt. So the first thing is remember his heart. The second thing is just talk to him about your doubt. Remember his heart, then talk to him. Talk to him. What did Peter do when he was drowning? He doubted. He didn't just drown. He said, Lord, help. Get me out of here. What did the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9 do? There's not enough faith Right? He, oh, Lord, if you're able, if I'm able, oh, you deserve more faith. Well, Lord, help my unbelief. He doesn't say, oh, I, I can't believe this. I got to get out of here, my poor kid. No, he says, Lord, if you need more, if there's a situation here where I should give you more faith, help me give you more faith. If that's what needs to have happen here, help me, because you're the source of everything anyway. To John the Baptist, we talked about it. He's in prison. Oh, Jesus must not be the Messiah. No, I'm confused. Jesus, I, I thought you were the coming king who was going to set us all free and ascend to David's throne. It is not looking good for me. I'm in prison, about to be beheaded. 
And so far, there's no takeover of the castle. There's no fire raining down on Herod. So what's going on? Are you really the Messiah? Go. John's message, John says to his disciples, go to Jesus and ask him, what is the deal? And so the second thing I want to say is, pray, go to him. Don't wallow in it. Don't sit there. Go to him. He knows it anyway. And two other brief things. Listen, a lot of people have had doubts for a lot of years. It's been 2,000 years of doubting going on in the church. A lot of struggles that are probably better, I don't say better, that are probably as hard if not greater than your own doubt struggles have been struggled through. And people have found answers that have kept them from giving up. And listen, this is important to think about when it comes to doubt, okay? Because there's a kind of doubt that is desperate to hold on to Jesus. And there's a kind of doubt that's looking for an exit ramp from Jesus. There's a kind of doubt that is so fearful of losing your faith, of losing your hope, of losing the Lord that you want to follow with the rest of your life, that you're just desperate and you'll, you'll pray, you'll remember his heart, you'll study, you'll look for, for ways to hang on and not give up hope. And then there's the kind of doubt that, that likes the possibility that there might be a new option here to bail, to get out of this this religion stuff and this following Jesus stuff and this doing, calling him, trying to follow him as my Lord and putting up with his rules stuff. And I've seen both kinds of doubts. So if you're looking for exit ramps away from Jesus, you might find them. And it will be horrible for you on the last day. So I beg you, if that's where you are in your doubt, please repent of that. Because you must believe. You have to believe. You have to have this Savior as your Savior. And that comes through faith. You have to follow the Savior as your Lord. And that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, again, through faith. So reject exit ramps. Look for directions. You're on the highway. You want to stay on the road. Look for the right directions, right? Don't look for exit ramps to get off this road. But if you're looking for directions, you're looking for reasons to hold on, reasons to not give up, he will give them to you. Not sight, but faith. There will always be room for doubt. There'll always be room for the possibility. This is all a game. It's all a joke. There'll always be room for the possibility that we're all in some program that's created by the matrix out there and we're in a computer system or that none of you exist and only I exist. All of you could say that in your private soul. What if everybody in this room is a computer hologram and I'm the only person who exists in the universe? Who knows? I don't know. There's always going to be room for crazy possibilities. Okay, so we got to live in that reality at least until Jesus comes back. But if you want enough, enough to not give up, he will give you enough to not give up on him and to say, there's a lot of things I don't know I can't control, but I have enough to keep believing in him. And you may have to fight for it. 
but he is worth the fight. I've had to fight for it. I've had so many doubts in my walk with God. And I I don't want to go on about this because I've told you, many of you, this before, but some of you haven't been here before. So it might be okay just for a moment just to say that I have come to places in my walk with God like Thomas where, I've ha- where I have said to God, if you don't explain this to me, if you don't help me understand this, I cannot follow you anymore. I- I've literally come to those places in my walk with Jesus where something has been so confusing to me in this book that seems like Jesus is contradicting himself and absolutely false, that I've had to come to him and just say, I cannot in integrity follow you anymore if you don't get me through this. And and he has gotten me through this again and again and again. Absolutely. And it has been some tough things I've had to work through in this book. But I'm better for it on the other end. I know more of this book. And now the doubts that come from great scholars or great intellects, they don't shake me anymore like they used to. Because man, I have been shaken hard. Especially early in my walk with Jesus. Shaken so hard. So when I read about Bart Ehrman or Christopher Hutchins or these big dogs and I read their stuff, I I don't get shaken like I used to. I'm not saying if God allows the storm to crush me, he could. But he has given me enough to hold on to hope when there's alternatives around that I could also grab on to. So the last thing I would just say is, 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 is be around believing people who love you. Be around believing people who love you. Because you need more than facts to authenticate the gospel in your heart. You need to see Jesus alive in people in ways that can't be explained intellectually only. You need to see real faith being lived out in real lives of love and sacrifice and the the many miracles God does in the lives all the time of people who believe in him and are waiting on him and are praying to him all the time. He meets them with miracles. And you need to hear about those things. So his merciful heart, remember it, pray, go to him, study. Don't look for exit ramps. Look for directions to stay on the highway and be around believing people. <clears throat> I want to come back to this passage. After Jesus shows his words to Thomas, shows his wounds to Thomas, something interesting happens that you might not have picked up on, at least in John's gospel. What happens when Jesus shows up to Thomas? Thomas says, here's what I need. I need to touch your Wounds. I need to put my hand in your side. But what actually happens? At least as John reports it, he, he doesn't do that. Jesus shows up and it's enough. And Thomas is crushed again, but in the best way possible. Thomas didn't need quite as much as he thought he needed. Jesus gave him enough. Thomas was even pessimistic about, he was even thinking the worst about his doubts. But after he shows up, Thomas' Thomas's heart melts 
And he proclaims, he goes from the biggest pessimistic doubter among the disciples to giving the greatest confession that any disciple has gives in the whole Bible. He says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And that's a beautiful thing because Jesus doesn't just take Thomas from where he was, which was like in last place in the disciple race and put him like level with the other guys in the playing field. He lifts him up in this narrative anyway, in a way that's kind of higher than anybody. Thomas says, my God, about Jesus. I don't think we've gotten any of the disciples to flat out say, you're God. This is the first time we see that in the gospels. No man in John's gospel has made, or any of the gospels has made this bold a proclamation of the deity of Christ. You won't find a stronger voice in the New Testament to glorify and honor Jesus than Thomas's at this point. And, and, and it's, that's what God does when he takes us from the, the drugs and we, and we find his mercy and we find his help. He puts us into a greater place than we ever were before. And, and listen, this isn't just academic for Thomas. Oh, you are fully God, not just fully man. You are fully God. It's, it's not just academic and beautiful and theological for him. It's very personal for him. He says, my Lord and my God the resurrection is not simply a fact for Jesus. Jesus' deity is not simply a fact for Thomas. It is personal for him. My, you are my Lord. You are my God. And this is an essential element for biblical faith, brothers and sisters. It is not enough to say Jesus is God. It is not enough to say, I believe Jesus was the Messiah who died for the sins of the world. It is not enough. James tells us the demons believe the same thing. They have better theological aptitude than probably any of us in this room. Some of them, probably, if not all of them. They know Jesus is the son of God. No, we must say with Thomas, Jesus is my Lord and he is my God. And I am trusting you, Jesus. I am depending on you, Jesus. I personally am putting my hope in you for my sins. And I want to follow you, Jesus, as my Lord and my God. And the beautiful thing of this story is that Jesus will now use Thomas along with all the disciples to nourish the faith of every believer who's ever lived for the next 2,000 years. This story, Thomas' experience, the apostolic witness that, that, that comes out of what John is saying. You know, some of you guys might be thinking, like I can think, why doesn't Jesus just appear to all of us all the time and put his hand, you know, we can put our hands here and put our, why can't he just show up? Why is it like this? I don't know all the answers. But it might help you to know that, that God planned it this way. And he says he planned it this way. That he didn't plan on staying around physically and showing everybody his wounds. He says he didn't plan it that way. He says lots of times, I'm leaving you. It's your job now to tell people about me. God's plan from the start of Jesus' mission was to work faith in the hearts of people through the witness of Thomas and his fellow apostles. 
who did see Jesus with their eyes and hear him with their ears and touch him with their hands. And this is implicit when Jesus says to Thomas these words, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus has his eyes on you. He's talking to you. Blessed are you because it's a miracle that you believe. It's a miracle that you believe in me. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus says to his small band of disciples, I am going to work my miracle of faith through the whole world through you, your testimony about me. They were special. They weren't more loved than us, but they're unique. So Jesus says, Jesus says, In John 15, to the disciples, you must testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning. In Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my witnesses. You guys, you 11 disciples, plus Paul, when he comes later, we'll get back to 12. You 12 disciples, that's what I think. In Acts 10, Peter says, God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, He could have, Peter says he could have, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Finally, in John's letter, his first letter, John, the one who was with Thomas, the day that Jesus appeared and said, touch my wounds, John says this, speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard Jesus, we've heard him, which we have seen with our eyes. We have seen him. We have looked upon and have touched with our hands. That which was with the father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and have heard, we proclaim also to you. This may seem like a strange way to communicate to the world, to take these 12 men make them witnesses, and then then through the Holy Spirit to work their proclamation into the hearts of other people. But for 2,000 years, that's how God has been doing it. And this is what God does. He does his work through people, through weak vessels. He doesn't come to replace us and to give us no dignity and to keep us out of a job. No, he comes to give us mission and to give us dignity by being part of something important. He's been doing it since Abraham. He's been doing it since Moses. He could have showed up to the Jews by himself. He picked Moses, he picked Aaron. He's always trying to get weak, limited people to do incredible things through his Holy Spirit. And he knows how to do this. So, stay near this book. God designed things to work this way. 
that he would show himself to these 12 people and to some others. And they would write these words because of what they saw and what they heard. And he designed it so that we would read these books and it would be authoritative. It wouldn't be this person, that person, this person, 2,000 years of different people with different opinions. No, he secured the authority in a very small group of people so that it would be secure, it would be authoritative. And then he did something miraculous. He made it so that this message is not just written on ink and paper and spoken through tracts and words, in sermons. No, he decided that he would anoint these words with his Holy Spirit so that they, for lack of a better way to put it, they become magical words when he decides that they should become magical words. And they fill you who are weary and tired and ready to give up with hope and strength. And they come upon people who don't believe in Jesus and the words of the gospel attended by the Holy Spirit become new life to them. So in closing, stay in this word. Don't neglect it. Know it well. Ask God to help you understand it because a lot of times it will be very hard to understand. But stay in it. Don't neglect it. And don't be ashamed to speak its truth to people around you who don't believe it. Because when and if God decides he will anoint your message about his message with his spirit and change them. That's how you got here. That's why you believe, whether it was your parents or a friend, somebody told you this message and God anointed it with his spirit and it changed your life. And he still does that. So, I want to pray and then we're going to take communion and hopefully have a great rest of our Easter. Let me pray for us. Lord, it is not in our power to make ourselves full of faith when we're struggling with doubt. But it is in your power to use the words of this book and the message of this book of your son and make it life to us and make it food for us. And so please, God, help us not neglect you. Neither in this book or in our ministry to one another and pointing one another to you. Help us not neglect you. Or, Lord, in the ministry that you, you've given each of us individually to have people around us who need you, who need the message of this word, would you help us not to neglect your message for that, for their sake as well, that people need you and they need to know about you and what you've said about yourself through your apostles.